Halibu takes aim at the Community Cultural Foundation, who is and who is not running for regional chief, and the latest from the Land Occupation import Port. This is Mi'kmaq Matters, a podcast about Mi'kmaq people, politics, land, and water. This is episode 243, brought to you with listener support. Become a patron at patreon.com slash Matters. I'm Glenn Wheeler here with Mi'kmaq Matters correspondent Greg Janes. Greg, um, a lot to pack in this week. We'll be hearing your interview with Dr. Timothy Collier and a greenhouse project on the port port Peninsula that's being impacted by that mammoth wind energy project. Give us a quick preview about that interview. Yeah, absolutely. So I met Mr. Collier when I was on the port port and uh, he mentioned uh, about expanding his greenhouses, but uh, not being able to uh, do that, running in some trouble. Um, he has four greenhouses right now, and it's a very interesting project. Later in the show, we'll be uh, hearing about that, along with news on the recent vandalism against World Energy GH2 equipment and an attempt to blame the land and water defenders for that damage without any evidence as far as we can see. But first, the latest in worrisome events at Halibu First Nation. Last week, we told you about the abrupt departure of Dean Simon from the Halibu Mi'kmaq language classes. The Simon news comes amid other departures from the Department of Culture and Tourism, whose director is Kelly Kirpan part of the HR disaster right now at Halibu, where there is no band manager. But now, another very big deal uh, uh, at uh, Halibu, a strange story in some ways that um, Halibu has sent lawyers' letters to a number of various organizations, including the Halibu Culture Foundation, saying they could no longer use the Halibu name, and if they do use it, that Halibu First Nation will take them to court, take them to court and perhaps even ask for financial damages. Greg, uh, it's hard to know how to figure out this story. Uh, Obviously, the Halibu Cultural Foundation has been around for many years, used to be part of of Halibu, but now it's its own uh, board of directors, which includes uh, uh, Odell Pike, uh, Elder Odell Pike, uh, former member of Halibu Council. And... um, this this letter received by the Cultural Foundation also sent to some other community organizations, including the Bergio Band. So uh, tell us, uh, what what do we know about what is going on with the Cultural Foundation? I understand they've been meeting this weekend to figure out uh, what to do. Yeah, Glenn, this is a very strange story indeed. Now, I spoke to several board members this morning about this, that uh, they're meeting to... Uh, to best how to approach this and respond respond back to this. Um, they wouldn't give any comment on what uh, they may, de- may or may not decide until they uh, sit down together and come up with a response uh, to this uh, letter that's being sent out. This letter says, um, uh, we Halibu First Nation owns the Halibu name. We own the Halibu name and the trademark. 
and you, Halibut Cultural Foundation, had to stop using the Halibut name right away. But of course, uh, I guess that for the Cultural Foundation, that would be a lot of work because uh, they'll have to uh, rebrand themselves. I guess they probably have a lot of material that they'll have to throw out because that has Halibut on it. Um, they'll have to um, reinvent themselves and tell the public that, uh, you know, their new names. So there'd be a lot of confusion. So uh, it would seem that uh, there'd be a lot of work. So rather than funding Halibut culture, they're going to be uh, uh, working on uh, this change ordered by Halibut First Nation. Yeah, as, as right now, they have uh, their back in the corner, that's for sure. Um, where they're going to go from here, not, um, you know, it's anyone's guess. Um, mm. You're absolutely right about rebranding. It's going to take a lot of uh, money to do that. Mm. And for a culture-based program, is that is there only to deliver cultural programs, um, you know, uh, workshops and events, and uh, and it funds, funds different artists and things like this. So this is... They got their hands full here. This is mm. going to be. Uh, this is going to hurt. Do we know that uh, the cultural foundation is going to um, to obey the letter, or are they going to fight back, or what? What do you th do you think there'll be resistance, and they'll try to get uh, Halibut First Nation to change its mind? Well, um, they they in the past, uh, Odell Pike has sent a letter out uh, looking for support or a way around, uh, looking for resolution around this. Uh, she hasn't received anything back from Halibut other than, um, you know, their bylaws uh, state that they have to have a representative sit on their, their board. Um, but um, no one has, has been uh, sitting on that board now for the past couple of years. And, and, and where do you, where do you, why now, why does this come up now? This, uh, this issue of the name and the trademark, because of course, Halibut Cultural Foundation has been around for a long time. So, who, who's uh, what's driving this right now? Um, right now, now if we do a good uh, or do a quick Google search, now you will find approximately twenty different organizations that are uh, using the name Halibut. So this is very strange on the timing of this. That um, you know, one one of my understanding is one of the counselors counselors brought it to an in camera meeting. Um, there wasn't um, you know. Uh, full consent, but um, they passed the name to have everyone stop using the name Halibut. Hmm. And uh, I, I understand uh, Bergia First Nation, which uh, was years and years and years ago, called itself the, uh, used the word Halibut. They also have re uh, received the letter, the same letter, even though they were using the name before um, Halibut First Nation was. Yeah, so in the 80s, that uh, when the band was uh, formed in Virgil, now its name was Alibu uh, Band. And once I got involved, uh, and that, that band has since been dissolved, um, you know, because Halibut was formed. Um, but when I got involved, we had a culture committee named Halibu Culture Committee, and which we no longer use now because we formed a band and uh, uh, the new band. Virgil First Nation, and now, now we don't use that name anymore, but we did have it registered as a corporation. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, for non nonprofit benefits or whatever. Now. Um, so we have to stop using that uh, altogether now. I see. Well, a strange uh, turn of events. Uh, uh, we'll see um, 
uh, what happens. Meanwhile, uh, as uh, as the band, uh, you know, I think it's fair to say uh, is suffering some dysfunction at the moment. Uh, Chief Brendan Mitchell has taken on a second job. He is now temporarily the regional chief for the island of Newfoundland. That was the that's the new position created uh, to have uh, direct Newfoundland representation at the AFN, and he'll be doing that on some until someone has. Uh, is hired permanently. I guess, uh, ironic, Greg, that it's Brendan Mitchell who will be negotiating with the federal government because uh, on uh, the urban reserve uh, fishing rights, even on enrollment, uh, he's, uh, shall we say, faced some challenges in delivering for uh, for Mi'kmaq and Newfoundland. But um, uh, we'll see what happens uh, to that. We asked uh, Halibu if he'll be receiving a second salary for the new position, but we didn't get an, a- an answer about that. I guess the question now is uh, who will be the permanent regional chief and uh, and how they will be chosen. And we saw the the interview with Brendan Mitchell on NTV where it sounds like a very small number of people will make the choice. Uh, perhaps the four uh, AFM members of Newfoundland, uh, Halibu, Glenwood, Flat Bay, and Mayobagag. And um, it sounds like we'll... We'll we'll get a name at the end, but won't know uh, who applied and on what basis the winner was chosen. So uh, hardly democratic. Um, there was some word that Odell Pike uh, would uh, be applying for the position, but she tells us that, uh, in her words, I have much community work to keep me busy, and uh, it sounds like she's not interested. Another name, Judy White. From uh, Flat Bay, former resident of the Mayobagag First Nation, lawyer, formerly on staff at the Assembly First Nations, and now chief commissioner of the Newfoundland and Labrador Human Rights Commission. She applied last time, uh, as we know, only to see see Paul Prosper chosen over uh, herself, uh, Judy, and uh, two other uh, women. So um, uh, we'll see if... um, if uh, she applies, we did contact her, but didn't uh, receive a reply. So uh, we'll we follow that one. So Greg, uh, now to Port of Port, and um, we still have uh, a land occupation out there. How is long? How long is it now? It's headed into I think uh, three weeks uh, since people have shut down the World Energy GH two project. Yeah, it's been three weeks now, and uh, some new developments been going on there. Uh, we know that uh, they have removed some equipment uh, from their site in mainland uh, due to some vandalism. And uh, yeah, so this, uh, and they tried to link that to the protesters, but uh, we received word from the RCMP. That is not the case. Yes. Well, it's interesting. Uh, we uh, we contacted uh, uh, John Risley to ask uh, about the protest and, you know, uh, how it's impacting their work, et cetera. So we get this uh Rather than get uh, re, uh, a reply from John Risley, we got their press release saying um, saying that uh, it has become evident that the pro- the protesters' primary issue is not related to the backup water supply, uh, but um, uh, they are uh, opposed to the project altogether. Um, they uh, talked about concern by the aggression shown towards our contractors, employees, and their livelihoods. And uh, talked about, um, uh, referred to the uh, people uh, occupying um, the land out there as being a small group. Uh, 
So trying to, without any evidence whatsoever, linking this vandalism of this equipment with the protest. And uh, as you say, the uh, the RCMP uh, spokesperson, Jolene Garland, said on CBC that um, protests have not escalated into violence and there's been no reported aggression or threats uh, among protesters that have warranted an RCMP presence at the site. And uh, she said that uh, the protesters uh, cooperated as uh, World Energy GHG removed their equipment. And she said, uh, Corporal uh, Garland, she said, we have to respect and protect the rights of a peaceful demonstration or protest as guaranteed under the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So, Greg, it sounds like uh, she's saying that um, that there's nothing to what uh, John Risley and World Energy GH2 is uh, saying in terms of uh, blaming the protesters for this vandalism. Yeah, it seems that, uh, you know, GH2 now wants to, uh, you know, uh, shed some uh, black light on these protesters, as you will. Um, but um, we're hearing from the RCMP and what they said, that, and things have been peaceful so far. It's, um, yeah, it's too bad that they, uh, rather than deal with, um, rather than deal with the, uh, the issues that they would go, uh, and, uh, and, uh, just, uh, blame them for something without, uh, any proof. And, and we heard, um, from people you talked to out in, uh, out in the, uh, on the port of port peninsula that they have been trying to sit down with world energy GH2, but it sounds like the, the company wants to, to meet with friendly people who agree with them and people who have a different opinion and have concerns, they're not so interested in them. So they, I guess, uh, they pick and choose who they uh, talk to. We've asked World Energy GH2 to meet with the public at large. And on all occasions, it's been no. At the and what do you think that is? I'm not sure. I, it's to control the narrative. Yeah, there's been a few meetings, the most recent actually happened in mainland. Uh, they typically, and by they I mean the company, World Energy GH2, they tend to try to control how many people are in attendance and who they are. So for, for instance, before a meeting was held, they had sent a letter to the LSD, the local service district, who was hosting the meeting and who had tried to set it up, uh, stating that they only wanted X number of people there and they wanted a list of the people who would be in attendance. As soon as the list was sent to them, they immediately canceled the meeting. On the subsequent meeting, they made demands that they would only meet with certain representatives and it would be a certain number of people. At the end of that, it was, it was a bit of a disastrous meeting. Uh, there was no, no real solutions. There were just quite a, lot of, uh, quite a lot of words thrown around without any actual concrete, uh, concrete plan. At the end of the meeting, it was asked very directly, and, and I, I can't remember exactly who asked, but they said, will you stop until these problems can be rectified? And the words that were spoken from one of the representatives, and I'm quoting here, is, we're not stopping. And that was the end of the meeting. Wow. So this tells you the type of attitude that we're dealing with here. Very <clears throat> arrogant, arrogant company. Let's go to your interview with Dr. Timothy Collier of Greenhead Growers, which has a greenhouse operation on the Port of Peninsula in mainland, I think is, uh, is it uh, that he has the, the greenhouse and where they want to expand. So let's listen to uh, your interview with Dr. Timothy Collier. Dr. Collier, uh, we understand that you have a uh, greenhouse operation within mainland. 
Um, tell us about where is your operation located? Yes, sir. So we have a relatively small, uh, large for Newfoundland standards, but small for Canadian standards, hydroponic greenhouse is located in the community of mainland out on the Port of Port Peninsula. Uh, currently about 3,000 square feet. We grow about 1,000 heads per, of lettuce per day, which according to the Department of Agriculture, technically makes us the largest producer of lettuce in Newfoundland. Uh, and we have some big plans for expansion in the coming years just because of the success we've been having so far. All right. So um, do you have any employees that uh, is helping you with this? Yeah. So it's myself and my uh, co-founder, uh, co uh, Dawson Green. Uh, so he works there basically full time, although he's still in university, so it makes it a little bit a uh, little bit challenging for him. But whenever he gets a chance, he's there. Uh, we had an employee up until Christmas time, and just due to some challenges with winter and trying to figure out the logistics of winter growing, uh, he's been just temporarily laid off. But we hope to get uh, get oh, another worker back, uh, either him or someone else, in the spring when things uh, when things start to clear up, and then. Once the expansion uh, happens, I'd say we're, we're going to need at least a minimum of five, uh, five more full, uh, well, maybe three full-time, two part-time uh, on top of myself and Dawson's efforts, although I'm, I'm not there as much as anyone else. So we're hoping to have about five, uh, five employees by next year. And in the coming years, that's going to rise exponentially, I believe. And uh, how much lettuce do you produce and where do you sell that lettuce? We sell mainly to Coleman's. Uh, we've had an excellent relationship with Coleman's grocery stores across Newfoundland. Uh, they distribute for us right to St. John's, uh, which is a huge benefit for us because we are very far out on the West. Uh, but there are other very large retailers uh, and wholesalers who have approached us. And just due to the cost of produce from the mainland, the, the mainland <laughs> up, in, uh, <laughs> up in Canada, we'll say, uh, they, they, they're they very interested in having some more local stuff that doesn't have the extra cost of transportation. That's excellent. Um, so I understand that you have uh, plans for expansion next year. Yeah. But your those plans may be impacted by the work on the World Energy Project. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Yeah, so we uh, there's there's two two issues that we have with the project as it is now proposed. Uh, issue number one has been the impact on the secondary water source, uh, and as we spoke of in the last podcast, there's uh, increased turbidity. Uh, and sediment uh, in the water. Uh, this by itself would be objectionable, I suppose, to someone's palate, but in terms of a hydroponics operation, it uh, it increases the risk of pathogens in the water, and so we need to up our disinfection practices. We also have to uh, filter all our water through a re reverse osmosis system. This removes all the solutes from the water as much as possible anyway, because we need a, uh, a water with zero PPM, so no minerals into it. So that way we can accurately gauge how much minerals to re-add to the water or salts. So NPK, nitrogen, phosphorus, and, and potassium. And the silt will just clog up our, our reverse osmosis filters in a hurry. So we'll be looking at increasing our, uh, our operating capital exponentially if we need to change those filters more frequently because they are extremely expensive. Uh, so apart from the issues with the water source, the other issue is the land use. So we have a relatively small, uh, a very relatively small agricultural lease right now of about four acres. And this is good for about, about our size that we will be expanding to, but World Energy GH2 or, or really any wind energy projects 
um, boundaries uh, will be right on ours, right on the rear of our our uh, land lease, whereas one time it would have been crown lands as far as the eye can see. So we had the opportunity to really expand to unlimited, really. Uh, but now if the land lease that is um, that has been drawn up by the crown lands goes ahead as planned and will be basically boxed in and won't be able to expand any larger than we are right now, which would be greatly unfortunate because I, I could see this expanding to an, to an unbelievable degree, really. So that's uh, going to be a great challenge to you. Now. So are, are your plans still going ahead? Oh, yes. We're going to continue on as if normal. Uh, so we're going to go ahead with our our expansion this year for sure um, and then uh, try to cross cross any bridges as we come to it. And if, uh, if some extra advocacy is needed, then that's what we'll do. But um, uh, we think that especially with the issues of food security in the province and food security for things like leafy greens, vegetables, we, ex we expect to expand into vine crops like tomatoes, cucumbers, and even strawberries in the future. So these are all very nutrient-dense crops that uh, people really need to have a varied diet. And so we'll, uh, we'll expand uh, no, matter, no matter what we need to do, but we'll, uh, we'll get it done. Um, so we have a wind energy project that's having a negative impact on your ability to grow healthy food and on the water supply itself so tell us how does that make you feel uh like many of the residents i think it makes everyone feel quite powerless uh there have been very little to no consultations in terms of either with this company or with government because it is the government's lease or, or land lease plan uh that they've drawn up with consultations from these companies, but there's been really no consultations with us in the community. So it makes you feel powerless. It makes you feel as though you don't have, you're not the master of your own destiny in your own community because people have been settled here in terms of European settlement since the late 1700s and in terms of Mi'kmaq settlement since probably time immemorial. So to have this company, which is, you know, a very, very new and inexperienced company, uh, that is not local to the area and the government, which is remote out in St. John's kind of dictating what will happen to our land when we have good use for that land is, um, you know, it's, it's a terrible thing. So it's much of the same thing that much of the same way that most people have been feeling. It's a mix of despair, hopelessness and uh, and uh, powerlessness, unfortunately. Greg, uh, a story that I know you've been following um, in Vancouver right now, uh, ending on uh, February 9th, uh, there is a, an event called Impact 5, which is um, brings together Indigenous peoples and cultures from around the world to embrace a collaborative approach and learn from Indigenous leadership in ocean conservation. And one of the people there is from Newfoundland. Her name is Sigrid Kunamund formerly of the Rural Wildlife Fund in Newfoundland and Labrador, and now with Parks Canada. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, I heard her speak at the annual general meeting of CPAWS Newfoundland, the Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society. And one of the things that came up was um, the uh, marine conservation area under consideration for the south coast of Newfoundland. And we've talked about that before, a marine conservation area in conjunction with uh, Sandbanks Provincial Park becoming a national park, maybe. And uh, and in this annual general meeting, she said that um, the south coast is under active consideration by Parks Canada for a marine conservation area, but there's an issue. 
And the issue is whether aquaculture can um, take place in a marine conservation area. So how do you balance those two? And if if uh, aquaculture is an automatic no uh, for a marine conservation area. And she also said that Meobigak First Nation has asked to be consulted regarding the establishment of any marine conservation area, which is interesting because, as we know, Chief Mazel Joe of, uh, of Meobigag has been a major proponent of aquaculture, of fish farms, despite the um, link to the near decimation of Atlantic salmon on the south coast. So, Greg, uh, we've talked here on the program about uh, fish farms in, in Burgio and how people think about them. So what, where is that now? Um, so I, I did speak to a counselor uh, recently, and uh, they the council, Virgil Council, had traveled to uh, Marystown to look at their facilities down there. And uh, word is it they came back uh, impressed with with the uh, with the operation. So it uh, right now that's where it is. Uh, we will get an update next week on further to to that. Um, but um, there. They are exploring ways on how to uh, assist Maui in setting up his uh, first farm operations in uh, on the south coast, uh, mm. you know, west or east of Virgil. Uh, so, but uh, this conservation area now, and what we're seeing that is doesn't look like um, we can have two to coincide. So it may be that we would have to come down and pick or choose. Uh, uh, which one we want. Do we want the fish farms or do we want the marine conservation area for for future? Mm-hmm. Um, so this is where it's uh, to right now. So I would have more to follow up on that at, at a later date. Very good, Greg. Um, that's it for the program this week. Uh, just a reminder for Halibut members that the council meeting is 9.30 a.m. this Saturday, February 11th. Halibut members can attend in person or watch the live stream available through the Yenu login. Look for us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for the latest in Mi'kmaq news and views. Allison Baker is the producer of Mi'kmaq Matters. Hillary McGinnis is our researcher. For Greg Janes, this is Glenn Wheeler saying, Amson Okamata.